if a stranger, Tony, if you would have seen him, if a stranger would have seen him, they wouldn't have known what he did, but they would have known he did something on life. They would have known that they were not, that he was uh, not necessarily of this world, world per se, you know, that they that he that they were dealing with something that was, uh, you know, very sinister, uh, very warped. That was retired Hernando County Sheriff's Lieutenant Craig Baxley describing to me the demeanor of Mike Caprat, forever known as the Granny Killer. In 1993, Caprat went on a murdering spree targeting elderly women in a quiet suburb north of Tampa. That shocking story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the brutal and twisted crimes of Edwin Bernard Caprat III, a serial killer linked to five homicides and one attempted homicide in Hernando County, Florida. Caprat raped and beat his victims, and to cover his tracks, he set their homes on fire. My special guest for that segment will be retired Hernando County Sheriff's Detectives Carlos Douglas and Craig Baxley as well as Hernando County Sheriff's Captain Jeff Kraft. Also joining me will be retired Tampa Bay Times reporter and columnist Dan DeWitt and Chief Assistant State Attorney Rick Ridgway. Coming up, the story of another accused drug dealer charged with murder following a fatal overdose. As we know, the opioid epidemic is a huge tragedy, not only in this area, but around the country. And uh, unfortunately, we're losing people every day. Shay Watts, a 31-year-old Ormond Beach man, was one of those victims of the ongoing opioid tragedy. You just heard Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri speaking during a media conference held Friday at police headquarters, during which he addressed Watts's death and the arrest of the man suspected of killing him by selling him a fatal dose of drugs. Last week, a grand jury indicted 22-year-old Justin Torrance on a charge of first-degree murder. Capri said Torrance sold Watts a mixture of heroin and fentanyl. Here is Capri discussing in more detail what happened on October 27, 2017, when Watts allegedly met up with his dealer. Our victim goes with two, two friends of his to go purchase drugs from Mr. Torrance, and he's been dealing with Mr. Torrance for a while. They made the deal. Uh, as soon as the drug deal's made, Mr. Torrance drives off. Our victim immediately ingests the heroin with his buddies there. Uh, within a matter of minutes, a mile or so, he's driving in the car, he collapses from those drugs. Uh, they rushed him to the hospital. Unfortunately, he, he expired. Capri said Watts was so desperate to get a hold of Torrance that day that he called him 27 times before finally reaching him. Torrance agreed to meet Watts at the Orange Avenue Mini Market at 709 Orange Avenue in Daytona Beach. After the transaction, according to police, Watts immediately snorted the heroin. Torrance drove away and Watts rode away with two of his friends. It was only moments later that Watts lost consciousness. His friends drove him to a local hospital, but doctors could not revive him. 
Torrance is the third accused drug dealer in Volusia and Flagler counties to be charged this year with first-degree murder in connection with the death of a client. In June, a Volusia grand jury indicted Stephen Montilla of Sanford. In February, a Flagler grand jury indicted Joseph Cologne of Palm Coast. Both of their victims, according to authorities, died from overdoses late last year. Montilla and Cologne are still behind bars without bail and are awaiting trial. If convicted, Montilla, Cologne, and Torrance could face up to life in prison. Capri said he has devoted more than 20 police officers solely to narcotics investigations. Back when he worked narcotics, crack cocaine seemed to be the drug of choice for most addicts. Overdoses at the time were far fewer. Today, the drug epidemic is much worse, especially in terms of the volume of people who are losing their lives, according to Capri. Due to the toxicity of fentanyl, a potent narcotic that becomes deadly when mixed with other substances, police have had to take extra precautions not to come into contact with it. The effects of the drug can be felt even if it comes in contact with a person's skin. Capri said his agency purchased $30,000 in laser detection technology, which gives police officers the ability to identify seized narcotics without having to touch them. Fentanyl, the drug that killed music star Prince, is even a danger to drug-sniffing dogs. In 2016, a Broward County police dog nearly died after being exposed to the drug while sniffing through a suspect's house. Capri told the media Friday that the dangers of fentanyl-laced heroin are too steep to ignore, and those who cavalierly sell those mixtures to vulnerable addicts should have to suffer the consequences. And we're spending every bit of penny we got on the investigation end of it so we can lock these drug dealers up who are nothing more than just uh, very disturbing people that they don't care about any regard for human life. It's all about making money, uh, the violence associated with the drugs. Um, they'll do whatever they can to sell the drugs. They don't care what's in these drugs or what happens to the victims. Coming up, the story behind the notorious granny killer a serial rapist, arsonist, and murderer who terrorized Hernando County 25 years ago. He ultimately, what he did is he, is, is he bound them, he sexually battered them, beat them, and then set them on fire. It, it was a crime where the, the brutality far exceeded what he had to do to kill them, you know? He, 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 would, he would not just kill them, he would, would brutalize them first. That was Chief Assistant State Attorney of Florida's 5th Judicial Circuit, Rick Ridgway. He was one of the prosecutors who, in January 1995, attained a first-degree murder conviction for Edwin Bernard Caprat III and successfully convinced a judge and jury to sentence him to death. During the late summer and early fall of 1993, Edwin Caprat, who was always known by his friends and family as Mike, terrorized elderly women up and down Hernando County. He raped and murdered four women. Then he dumped rubbing alcohol in the room where they lay and struck a match. He also fatally beat an 84-year-old man who intervened while Caprat was attacking his 83-year-old wife. She survived. 
During the span of seven weeks, Caprat had killed five people and nearly killed another. Two other murders, one in Tampa and another in New Jersey, were linked to Caprat before his killing spree in Hernando. But authorities never were able to gather enough evidence to charge him in those slayings. It wasn't until after the last victim was murdered and after that attempted arson didn't go as planned that detectives found the trail that led to Mike Caprat. The delayed arrest was likely because arson investigators kept getting it wrong. They kept saying that the fires were accidental. I'll delve into that a little later. Caprat's first Hernando victim was 80-year-old Sophia Garrity. She lived alone at 9417 Melrose Street in Spring Hill, a home located in a quiet neighborhood along Deltona Boulevard near US-19, a busy north-south corridor that runs along the west side of the state. Garrity was known as the Cookie Lady. She loved baking them from scratch and handing them out to the neighborhood kids. She was a mother of five and was close to her family. She was living out the last stage of her life the way she had always wanted, on her terms, and close to her family. Shortly before 4.30 a.m. Saturday, August 7, 1993, a call came in about a fire at Garrity's home. By the time Spring Hill firefighters responded, the house was fully engulfed, with most of the heat coming from the master bedroom. Firefighters put out the blaze, and afterward, Garrity's severely charred remains were found. It appeared she was in bed when the fire started. Garrity was a light sleeper, which may have raised some questions among those who knew her. She wasn't the type who would sleep through a raging fire. Also, a window was open in the house. She was known to leave one or more windows cracked once in a while, but she didn't leave any of them wide open overnight. The firefighters were asked, one by one, whether any of them had opened a window. They all said they hadn't. That was the first indication that maybe Garrity's home had been burglarized. Two Hernando County Sheriff's detectives, Jim Holbrook and Mark Gongry, canvassed the neighborhood, interviewing witnesses to the fire. One of the first women they interviewed was Lorraine Alice Daw. She wasn't the most neighborly person and didn't know Garrity all that well. She did know, however, that a man by the name of Mike used to date Garrity's granddaughter, and Mike lived next door to Daw and across the street from Garrity. Holbrook and Gongri interviewed the man, who they learned was Mike Caprat. He told them a lot. He said that he had dated Garrity's granddaughter, Debbie. The pair dated until Debbie passed away the previous winter. Caprat also said he had just moved into his sister's house on Melrose Street. He had only been there for a few days. He played dumb when detectives asked him about Garrity, suggesting he wasn't even sure whether she was still living there. Caprat also told the detectives that he had been out drinking with friends earlier that morning in Brooksville. He got home around 2 o'clock that morning. He went outside to pull some work clothes off the clothesline and then went back inside, 
All of a sudden, he thought he heard someone enter the house. That's when he ran outside through the back door. It was while he was running that he tripped and fell. He suffered a small cut on the palm of his right hand. That seemed to be the explanation Caprat gave to detectives when they asked him about his hand injury. Caprat told detectives he eventually went to bed that morning and was awakened a short time later by the fire trucks. Detectives Holbrook and Gongri got more information about Caprat. They found out he had just finished serving a stint behind bars for using stolen credit cards. Caprat claimed he had found a wallet while he had been fishing in Tampa Bay. Instead of leaving it alone or turning it over to police, he took the wallet and used the cards that were inside. Those cards belonged to a man who was later found floating in the bay. Caprat was investigated for the murder, but was never charged. Caprat told the Hernando Sheriff's detectives that he would be glad to help in whatever way he could with regards to the fire across the street, but he reiterated that he probably had no way to assist them because he hadn't seen Sophia Garrity in some time. The detectives told their on-scene supervisors about their interview with Caprat. The Sunday editions of the Tampa Bay Times and the Tampa Tribune contained stories about the fire and Garrity's death. On Monday, the Times, then known as the St. Petersburg Times, printed a story with the headline, Fatal Fire Called Suspicious. A sheriff spokesman told the paper that an investigation into the suspicious death was underway. However, two days later, the Times published a story stating that the cause of the fire was an electrical short. Arson investigators surmise that the fire was started by a faulty circuit board inside a television. It was unusual that a woman would die in her bed from such a fire, but once the sheriff's office concluded that the fire was accidental, people continued with their daily lives. Detectives didn't pursue any other leads because they had no reason to. It was no longer an open criminal investigation. It was back to normal in Spring Hill. Ten days later, there was another fire. This one took place at 1173 Cobblestone Drive, located about five miles southwest of the Melrose Fire. In that case, a man sneaked into the house occupied by William and Alice Whitney. The burglar used some kind of tool to pry open the door and then used the same tool to strike Alice Whitney, who he encountered in the living room. Alice, who was 83 and in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's, screamed for her husband, William. The 84-year-old emerged from a rear bedroom and the burglar wound up fighting him. Both victims, William and Alice, suffered ghastly blows to the head and body. In an effort to destroy any evidence he may have left behind, the suspects set fire to the living room curtains and fled the area. From next door, a man heard screams, as well as the sound of a smoke alarm going off. He ran outside and saw that his neighbor's house was on fire. Then he heard William Whitney yelling for someone to call 911. Firefighters arrived in time to prevent the fire from destroying the house, and they also pulled out the injured occupants. William Whitney was so severely battered that he slipped into a coma and never regained consciousness. He would die 
of pneumonia-related symptoms three months later. Alice Whitney was released from the hospital a week or so after the attack. But due to her Alzheimer's, she wasn't lucid enough to tell authorities what had happened. She moved to Mississippi to be with her family. Investigators were puzzled. Nothing was left behind by the intruder, and nothing had been stolen. No one saw anything suspicious. The media made no mention of the Melrose fire when they published stories about the cobblestone fire. The two blazes were 10 days apart. One house was a total loss, while the other wasn't. One was occupied by an elderly couple, while the other by an elderly woman. One was ruled accidental and the other intentional. People were not linking the two. But there were two investigators who did think it was odd that two fires took place so close together, in distance and in time. One of those investigators was Carlos Douglas, who in 1993 was a homicide detective with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. You know, we were both born and raised in Brooksville, and I mean, we just didn't have fires that close together, you know, with people in the house. So amongst ourselves, we talked, you know, we know this don't happen in Hernando County like this. Not, you know, two weeks, you know, from the fire that killed Miss Garrity. So we talked about it. One day after the fire on Cobblestone came another fire. Around 2 a.m. on August 18th, a mobile home at 8163 Weatherford Avenue was gutted. Inside the home was 72-year-old Ruth Goldsmith. She, too, was discovered dead in her bedroom. The fire was started in the bedroom and was just as intense as the one that claimed the life of Sophia Garrity. Just like with Garrity, Goldsmith's limbs had completely been burned away. But by the time the media could report the story, the fire had already been ruled accidental. Arson investigators, the same ones who looked at the Garrity case, concluded again that the fire was the result of an electrical short. They blamed it on a cheap lamp that had shorted out. Here again is Carlos Douglas, recalling the thoughts in his head following the third fire in 11 days. So our same two arson investigators responded from the sheriff's office and... Again, they tried to link that fire to a lamp. They said that they found a lamp in the house that looks like it uh, might have had some uh, shortage in the wire or something. We just knew, like I say, me and a couple other guys, you know, we knew that it was more to it. But we just, you know, we just couldn't. We had nothing to base it on. You know, we had two seasoned detectives both trained in arson and we had a state fire marshal who responded also and he seemed to go along with them but you know like i say we just knew it was more a quiet mobile home park located north of state road 50 outside the city of brooksville it was a good eight miles from the melrose fire and 12 miles from the cobblestone fire goldsmith was single and had no children She had lived in Hernando for two years. She spent most of her life in Pennsylvania. 
Her Brookridge house was her dream home, and she had always wanted to retire in Florida. Her neighbors were heartbroken. She was always so house-proud, and she was also known to have been deeply religious. She would often attend church with her close friend and neighbor, Lydia Riddell. During the next two weeks, all was quiet. There were no reports of suspicious activity. Only one of the fires was an open criminal case, but no clues had been uncovered in that one. Then came the most heart-wrenching call so far that summer. There was a fourth fire. On September 2nd, a house at 14328 Evermore Street was consumed by flames and black smoke. The house on Evermore was only two-fifths of a mile from the goldsmith's house. Worse yet, the victim in this fire was Goldsmith's best friend, Lydia Riddell. One of those arson investigators noticed that Riddell's bedroom had contained the same model lamp that had been found inside Goldsmith's bedroom. It appeared that same investigator, according to Douglas, was prepared to make another wrong conclusion. It was then that a supervisor put his foot down. They was going to say, well, if she had the matching lamp, or maybe it was a defect in the manufacture of the lamps. And I think that's when the hammer dropped. You know, we had a meeting outside of Mrs. Riddell's house, and the commander at the time said, if there's anybody here now that think these fires are accidents, I want you to get in your car and go home. He said, I don't even want you here. The story in the September 3rd edition of the St. Petersburg Times contained the headline, Fire Death Labeled Homicide. It was the first time that any of these fatal fires was reported as an act of arson. There were a few things about the Riddell fire that were different from the others. For starters, Riddell's car had been stolen. It was recovered on the east side of the gated community near the Volunteer Fire Station. Douglas said it appeared the car was driven there by the suspect, who then used the car to step on so he could more easily climb over the fence. There was another thing different about this fire. Riddell's corpse wasn't as badly burned as the others, so there was a better chance of collecting evidence. That is, if the killer left any behind. When the fireman rolled her over, you know, her head was uh, up to the neck, but the jawbone was completely burned away. Her legs was burned away, probably about the knee, and rolled the torso over. The, the back and all was pristine. It wasn't damaged by fire, by smoke, no nothing. And we saw that her hands was bound together at the wrist by duct tape. That wasn't all. When the autopsy was performed on Riddell, the medical examiner discovered hairs lodged in the victim's throat. They were pubic hairs. That's when detectives knew that the killer wasn't just setting the women on fire. He was raping them, too. The sheriff's office, in the beginning, wouldn't confirm whether the Whitney beatings were related to the two fatal arsons in Brook Ridge. Detectives said they didn't have the evidence to link them. Not only that, but they didn't bring up the Melrose fire either, the one that claimed the life of Sophia Garrity. After the stories about the two latest fires were reported, the resulting paranoia was mostly contained to Brook Ridge. But people throughout the area had started talking. 
Then on September 24th, fire and police units got another call. There was a fifth fire. This one didn't burn for long. It extinguished in the bedroom just before the flames spread to the bed. The only thing damaged by the fire was the carpet. However, there was a body, another elderly woman. Not only that, but the victim was someone who detectives had met previously. It was Alice Daw, the woman who lived on Melrose, across the street from Sophia Garrity. There was no longer any doubt. There was a serial killer on the loose in Hernando County. Residents from Spring Hill and Brooksville, particularly elderly women, were beyond frightened. Some of them decided to go live with family out of state. Gun sales skyrocketed. Local locksmiths were never busier. The sheriff's office was urging residents to take extra precautions. G.Z. Smith was a high-ranking commander at the sheriff's office at the time. Smith told the media, quote, I know we're dealing with a predator who preys on older, single ladies. Dan DeWitt was a reporter with the St. Petersburg Times. Here he is describing to me the level of fear among Hernando residents. It was an unusually terrifying case, and he was unusually terrifying because his victims were so helpless. You know, such a big percentage of the population felt vulnerable. There, there were a lot of widows in, uh, in Hernando County, and they were, they were absolutely terrified. In 1993, Spring Hill, where three of the fires took place, had 52,000 residents. Nearly 40% of those residents, according to the Times, were older than 65. An estimated 2,000 of them were elderly women who lived alone. Detectives had their eye on someone, a person of interest. He was a local drug addict who had a habit of peeping into windows and knocking on people's homes asking for money. If nobody answered, he would burglarize the home and look for something valuable to steal. He was interviewed by detectives who grew more suspicious of him based on some of his strange statements. They took a DNA sample from him and kept an eye on him. At that point, he was the focus of the investigation. The killer's failure to burn down the second house on Melrose gave detectives a long overdue break in the case. The suspect didn't count on the fire burning out. It was set on the carpet, but he had set it up so that it would spread to the bed and cause another inferno, one that would almost certainly destroy the body and every trace of DNA he left behind. But that didn't happen this time. When detectives examined the inside of the house, they learned more about the killer's M.O. A lot more. Here again is Carlos Douglas. It gave us the method of the fire, her arms and all with duct tape behind her back. Her body was laying on the bed. Sheets and pillows and everything were stacked around her body that was soaked with rubbing alcohol. So we knew the rubbing alcohol was the accelerant. The murder scene gave detectives a bigger glimpse at just how disturbing the suspect was. Douglas told me that Dawes' death was the one that shocked and shook him the most. That one hurt me more so than anything. Out of all the other cases, that hurt me How more, Mrs. Dow. You know, because I saw the crime scene. You know, we had Caprat's fingerprints in the house. He took his time in the house. He took his time in the houses. 
You know, what he did wasn't rushed. You know, they lived alone. He took his time. He ate food. He drank milk. All this was evident in Mrs. Dow's house by fingerprinting. You got him in the kitchen. You got him in the bathroom. He even took time to clean up. We got his pubic hair out of the uh, uh, the pipe in the sink. We knew he spent some time in these houses. A palm print also was recovered at the scene of the crime. It was pulled off the victim's car. It appeared the suspect had placed his hand on the vehicle to balance himself while he climbed through the window he had forced open. After the second Melrose fire, the sheriff's office received a tip. A local woman realized the link among the fires after the news broke about Lydia Riddell's murder. She knew there had been a man who visited that house prior to the murder. That same man also had been inside Goldsmith's house, as well as Garrity's house, and possibly the Whitney's house. She stayed silent because she wasn't completely sure, and also because she was scared. She was scared of being wrong, and also scared of being right. What if word got out that she had called police? Maybe she would be next. Then came the news about Dawes' murder. The woman who harbored her suspicions knew she had to say something. She desperately wanted someone else to come forward. But she also knew she couldn't wait. She was so nervous about calling the sheriff's office tip line, she placed a piece of cloth over the telephone receiver in an effort to disguise her voice. She also refused to give her name. She told the call taker that detectives needed to take a long look at Mike Caprat. The anonymous tipster had been friends with Caprat's parents, Ruth and Skip, for about 10 years. Ruth was a local realtor. Skip was a handyman who specialized in cabinet work. Ruth was the realtor hired by the Whitney's, and Skip came to their house to do some maintenance work. He brought along his son, who put up the Century 21 sign in the front yard. It turned out that Skip had actually gone to most of the victim's houses and had brought his son with him. Detectives circled back to the man they had interviewed hours before that first fire. The one with the fresh cut on his hand. The one who had dated Sophia Garrity's granddaughter. The one who had admitted to being inside Garrity's house and knowing the victim. The one who had admitted to being a murder suspect in Tampa. Before long, more evidence started to trickle in. In addition to the pubic hair, the medical examiner also found animal hairs on the last two victims, Riddell and Daw. Those hairs came from a dog, one with red fur. Caprat sometimes stayed in a house that had a red chow. And there was more. A witness had spotted a suspicious man sitting inside a car smoking cigarettes. The car was parked down the road from Alice Daw's house. Not long after the witness had spotted the car, Daw's body was found. The witness told detectives about that man in the car. Here again is Carlos Douglas. Miss Dow had a lawn care service. The lawn care people showed up the morning after the murder. They didn't go in the house, but they showed up. In fact, they were the one who called the sheriff's department. Uh, when they got there, 
to do the lawn, they noticed a car parked down the road. It was a guy sitting in the car, just staring at Mrs. Dow house. They took note of that. They described the car, the car was Pratt's car, and I think what happened, he came back because he was puzzled why the house didn't catch on fire. When he came back, my think, my thinking or my thought was he came back to reset the house, but he couldn't get to it because of the lawn people there. Meanwhile, that palm print on Dawes' car came back as a match to Mike Caprat. Detectives now only had one person on which to focus the investigation. They stopped focusing on the burglar who was addicted to crack cocaine and devoted all of their resources on surveilling Caprat. This new suspect had to be tailed. Undercover deputies worked around the clock to keep tabs on him. They wanted to catch him before he killed another victim. It wouldn't be easy. Caprat would stay with his sister sometimes, and other times he'd stay with his parents. He also had a woman he would sometimes spend the night with. His full-time job was an hour south in Tampa. There was another issue. Caprat was a maniacal driver. One investigator compared his driving habits to those of a getaway driver of a bank-robbing gang. Caprat was aggressive behind the wheel. He almost always exceeded the speed limit. He would even pass motorists by driving on the shoulder. It was easy for deputies to lose him, so they had to use a tracking device. In 1993, those devices weren't all that tiny. GPS technology wasn't all that prevalent back then. The process of installing a tracking device took time, and the person doing it had to be sneaky. That responsibility fell on Jeff Kraft, now a captain with the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. Here he is talking to me about the night he and another undercover deputy showed up at Caprat's house to bug his car. Shortly after Caprat was developed as a suspect, we were on the night surveillance team, which I was part of, which was about 10 to 12 guys, and we would work 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So around the, I'm going to say the second or third day, we had a radio tracking device that we were installing on his car to monitor him. We got the tracker, which was about maybe half the size of a car battery nowadays, and then the receiving unit was a big old suitcase you put on the front seat, and there was a huge four antennas for directional that you put on the hood of the car. So we have to install the tracker. We waited till probably the middle of the night, and he was off of East Road, which is just south of Hernando County and Pasco side. So me and my partner walk up there with the tracker, and he was on, I would guess, a couple acres because it seemed like the house and the car were set way back. So we're surveilling to see if it looked like anybody's home so we can sneak up and put the tracker on. Well, my buddy stays by the road to keep an eye out, and I walk up the west side of the property. There was a wooded lot, which was empty next door. So I kind of used cover, darkness, walk up the wood line, and then I had to cut into the car, which from memory, I believe it was a Granada. So I sneak over, get on my back, slide under the back end of the car, and I'm probably 10 yards from the house that he was in, and there was a fenced backyard. I must have made some noise at that time because I start hearing something growling. So I look over to my left, and there is a big Doberman growling at me. Thank God it was on the inside of the fence. 
It's kind of like you see in the movies uh, where you turn over and there's a he's snarling at you. But he did that low growl, so I knew I wasn't busted yet. So I didn't move right away because I knew if I started moving, he'd realize I was under there and start barking. So I started to move really slow. But once he started barking, man, I took off. So I, um, I didn't get out of there as stealthy as I got in. In spite of the vicious Doberman, Kraft successfully attached the device without being seen. But there was still a problem. Caprat didn't always get around by car. Sometimes he just felt like wandering around. Whenever he was staying in Pasco, in the area of Shady Hills, he sometimes preferred to go places on foot. Shady Hills is a dark, desolate place south of County Line Road, the east and west corridor that divides a large portion of Pasco and Hernando counties. One night, Caprat was seen walking in the area of Shady Hills. It was becoming increasingly difficult for deputies to keep track of him. They could only do so many intervals before he would catch on. And they absolutely needed to keep an eye on him. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in position in case Caprat decided to commit another murder. A decision had to be made on the fly. An undercover deputy had to go pick him up. Not to arrest him. Not yet. That deputy was only supposed to offer him a ride. Here again is Jeff Kraft. I don't know if he walked there or how we got him there, but he's on foot at the Little Ranch and Shady Hills Road convenience store. And I remember I was a little bit further to the south and I could look across the parking lot and see him sitting there. And a couple of detectives were strategically placed and we're watching him smoke and flick cigarettes. Well, our job was to go get a cigarette because we had to get the DNA to compare to DNA evidence that was recovered from at least some of the victims. Um, I believe that was the night all of a sudden he's going down Shady Hills Road hitchhiking. Well, we're all in cars and we were told, don't let him out of your sight. What are we going to do? So we decide... Craig, you're going to go pick this guy up, and you're going to give him a ride wherever he's going. So it's spur of the moment. He can't have his radio on. We don't have a wire back in the day. We used to do the one-watt wires for undercover. So there was no signal. We had to let him pick him up, and then we just had to follow and hope to God nothing happened to Craig. So sure enough, he pulls over, picks him up, and we end up following him to pretty sure it was his parents' house off a waterfall, and luckily nothing happened because we're all following, trying to communicate with each other. Do you see anything? Is Craig okay? So that was uh, definitely a stressful night, but everything turned out okay. Craig Baxley, who retired years ago from the sheriff's office, still remembers that night almost 25 years ago. It was the one time he sat alone in a car with a serial killer. That night, a decision was made uh, to, uh, to pick him up, and I was instructed to try to touch base with him on the side of the road, and so that's what I did. And so he didn't know who I was. I was undercover. And um, I said, hey, man, you need a ride? And uh, he, he always had that, uh, man, he always had that deer in the headlight look, that just that, kind of that evil look in his eyes. And he, yeah, I remember he looked at me, and he said, yeah, man, I, I get in the car. And we, when he, we first made contact, he wasn't in an agitated state. But as soon, Tony, as soon as he got in my car, he, uh, he, he, he began a copping attitude. The car ride wasn't all that pleasant for Baxley. So, Tony, he got real upset. He's like, don't worry about where we're going. After this and that, you, I'll tell you, you just drive. 
I'm like, dude, I'm picking you up, man. I'm doing you a favor. Take a take a chill pill, relax. Do what I tell you. And so I can tell right then that this this was uh, a unique moment because here I am, this uh, you know, middle of the night, and uh, you know, I've got this Caprat character in my car, and he's uh, agitated, um, he's he's aggravated, and he's already uh, got an attitude. The thought definitely crossed Baxley's mind that he might have to unholster his gun. So I kind of had a plan. I said, you know, I had a, I was on and I had the, I had the, uh, I had the weapon between me. I was driving and I had the weapon between me and my door. So it was on the opposite side of him sitting in the front seat. But I also knew he kept reaching in his waistline, the more uh, matter he got. So uh, I realized that if it came that way, it wasn't going to be much time. To, uh, I mean, he wasn't going to be the kind of guy that uh, he could uh, say, hey, you're, you're under arrest. Uh, you know, it was going to go south pretty quick. I just wanted but, to be clear on one thing, Craig. He was reaching for his yeah. waistband, so you thought that maybe he had something in his waistband. Sure. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I knew what we were looking at, and I knew what we thought of him. I certainly knew at that point what what, what his capabilities uh, probably were. I realized that if, that if a gun battle ensued, it was going to be fairly quick. The entire drive was an exercise in poise for Baxley. It was spooky is not the right word. It was uh, uh, tremendously unnerving. Uh, you know. I mean, I, when he got in the car, the doors were open, dome lights were on, and, and he, you know, I mean, I've I seen it in his eyes. I've I, I seen, seen the evil, I've seen the blackness, and I, I felt his aggravation, and he's calling me names, and like not, not wanting to tell me where we're going. I'm like, dude, how am I going to take you somewhere if I don't know where we're going? Just drive, you know, just do what I tell you. I'm like, hey, you know. You know, even at the departure, I, I, my, my hand was on my head. I really felt at that time he was, he was probably going to open the passenger door, step out and turn and shoot. Former Times reporter Dan DeWitt is working on a book inspired by the events surrounding the Caprat case. The story about Baxley's encounter with Caprat didn't surprise DeWitt when I told him about it. Caprat was not only an unstable man, but someone who is intent to make others miserable, including his own family. It doesn't surprise me because everybody said he was an he's just an you know, um, just sounded so unpleasant, uh, you know, abusive and ungrateful to his parents and I think bullying to his girlfriend. That's why the relationship broke up. Uh, you know, I never thought there was any deep, interesting psychological stuff going on. I just thought he was just a total and a total and didn't didn't really feel anything for anybody else. The time had come to bring him in. Detectives were ready to serve four search warrants, all simultaneously. They were to be served at the homes where Caprat was known to stay, as well as on Caprat himself. They needed hair samples from him. The night of October 8th, 1993, two weeks after Dawes' murder and ten days after the anonymous tipster called in with her information, deputies made their move. But the operation hit a snag. Unbeknownst to detectives, Caprat was no longer driving his clunky Ford Granada around. He had traded it in for an older model Toyota MR2, waiting for his car to move. It never did. It remained parked 
at a dealership. Detectives called the business and discovered that Caprat had a new set of wheels. He had dumped their surveillance. There was a mad scramble looking for Caprat. Every on-duty deputy in Hernando was on high alert. Eventually, the suspect was found about a mile north of the Pasco County line. The radio call went out, and every deputy in proximity swooped in. Caprat, plagiarizing the words from a more notorious serial killer, David Berkowitz, reportedly turned to the arresting deputies and asked them, What took you so long? Caprat was interviewed for more than four hours. The interview was must-see viewing for nearly everyone who was involved in some way, small or large, in the apprehension of a serial killer. Here again is Jeff Kraft. Yeah, it was incredible because, um, like I say, nobody you don't get to work a serial killer every day, and some people can work a 40-year career and never do it. So, yes, everybody wanted to see, and I'm sure you remember the sheriff's office. It was a very narrow hallway kind of passageway with uh, the mirrors behind every interview room. So, yeah, when I went back there for my turn, there had to have been 20 of us at that one time where we're, like, bending our heads in just to see. Baxley told me he didn't have as much curiosity as the others. He was too turned off by the suspect. I was in the room for the first part, and then I left. Wow, so you heard him describe, I guess, his first victim? Yeah, and I don't remember the details, but I remember him starting to describe in detail a little bit, you know, like, you know, what he did with the tapes and the different things. And I just, you know, I think, I got, you know, uh, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing the questioning at that point, and, uh, and, I, and I don't know. But I think uh, when I was, one of the reasons, one of the decisions was made uh, to, to, to have me there initially was because they wanted to let him know that I, that night we were so on to him that the guy that gave him a ride w- was a cop. Caprat actually kept telling detectives they went through too much trouble to catch him. Had they simply called him up and invited him in, he would have agreed to come in. He said more during the interview. He kept saying he had a death wish, and he referred to himself as an animal. He said he hoped to fry like Ted Bundy. Detectives had to break a rule to get him to stay in his seat. And I think that's when the no smoking ban started where you couldn't smoke indoors. Well, for this gentleman, smoke away. We let him smoke in the interview room just because we didn't want to ruin anything and we wanted to keep him talking. So once he started talking, he could have done whatever he wanted. Carlos Douglas handled a lot of the questioning. He remembers the reluctance on the part of some to allow Caprat to smoke inside the interview room. Douglas wasn't about to let his man go outside for a smoke break for fear he might come back less inclined to talk. He recalled addressing that issue with his commander, Jeezy Smith. I knew we had him on the ropes because he was a chain smoker. He had to smoke. So at the time, you couldn't smoke in a government building. When I walked outside and I spoke with G.Z. Smith, they was all watching the interview. We had we had our sheriff behind the glass. We had the uh, lead supervisor for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. We had FBI behind the glass. We had ATF behind the glass. Everybody watching this interview. You know what I'm saying? So, and I'm saying to myself, I'm saying, this is, you know, ridiculous. I got to walk out here now, and I, I'm telling GZ, just let me give him a f- cigarette. 
If I get this guy a cigarette, he's going to sing like a caged bird. Well, I don't know if we can do that because we'll be breaking the state. What's so more important, breaking the state law about smoking in a building, opposed to putting a serial killer away that we know have killed seven people, including Tampa and New Jersey, and here, you know? Yeah. I'd rather be fined by the governor if I have to be for letting someone smoke in a public building, you know? So he said do it. He started smoking, and he started talking. Just before dawn on October 9th, 1993, Caprat was booked at the jail. The next day, word got out that Hernando's ongoing nightmare was finally over. The granny killer was behind bars. Caprat wouldn't be tried for another 15 months, but the media in Tampa kept the story alive. He granted at least one jailhouse interview, during which he described his interaction with the other jail inmates. There was also a story about a planned escape, but it was thwarted before Caprat ever got a chance to put it in motion. Stories also were written about Caprat's possible involvement with the previous murders in Tampa and New Jersey. Then came the story that shed some light on the early stages of the criminal investigation, or more accurately, before there was ever a criminal investigation. Dan DeWitt and one of his colleagues broke the story that Caprat had actually been one of the first people interviewed by sheriff's detectives hours after the first fire. DeWitt's source was Mark Gongry, one of the two detectives who actually spoke to Caprat that day. Gongry agreed to be interviewed because he had resigned from the sheriff's office in 1994. Here is DeWitt talking about that story. What I remember most distinctly was that Gongre interviewed him the day of, the the day after the first, uh, the Garrity fire. So, and he wrote a report on it. And I think he even made a little noise about, and this is this is kind of a plot that I've gone with. Um, he made a little bit of noise about. I'm not sure these are these are elect these are electrical fires. And we we did a story on that that they kind of well, we couldn't quite say they blew it, but um, we interviewed Congre was a um, he was bail bondsman or a PI, so he was kind of free to talk about it. And so we interviewed him, and then you know they had to admit, yeah, we had that report, we had that name the very first day. There might not have been backlash after that story came out, but certainly it got people thinking, what if? What if Caprat had been interviewed a second time shortly after that first interview? Would he have come clean sooner? Would Alice Daw still be alive? Would Goldsmith and Liddell still be alive? The sheriff's office, as DeWitt noted, had no choice but to come clean. Jeezy Smith who commanded the major case unit at the time, was quoted in the time saying, It's terrible. No one hates it worse than we do, that we had multiple murders before we were able to pinpoint this guy as a suspect. Gangri himself said a lot of people at the sheriff's office made mistakes, himself included. But the one thing he always believed, he said, was that the fires were not accidental. DeWitt told me that one of the arson investigators who erroneously concluded three times that the fires were electrical in nature remains haunted by his mistakes. 
Next up was the trial. Following William Whitney's death, which occurred during the pretrial phase of the case, Caprat had five first-degree murder charges leveled against him. It was the decision of the state attorney's office to try him twice for two of those murders. They wanted two death penalty sentences in the event one got overturned on appeal. They agreed not to try him for all five, opting not to put the victim's families through more heartache. The trial was held in Hernando County, but the juries came from Lake County, about an hour west. The Orlando news market didn't saturate the airwaves with stories about the granny killer murders, so there was a much better chance to select unbiased jurors from that pool. DeWitt told me there wasn't a lot of drama during the two trials. One major reason for that was Caprat's detailed confession to detectives. There was nothing that defense attorneys could do. They were virtually powerless in their effort to prevent a guilty verdict. During his interview with detectives, Caprat was specific about what he did to each victim. With the exception of the Whitney's, Caprat raped all of his victims. He forced them to have intercourse. He forced all but one to perform oral sex on him. He usually broke into their homes through a window or a door. Oftentimes, he used a tool, like a wood-handed chisel. He duct-taped Riddell after he found the roll of tape inside the house. He used rubbing alcohol as an accelerant because each victim had at least one bottle of it in the house. When he killed Sophia Garrity, all he had to do was walk across the street. He admitted that he killed her because she badmouthed him to her granddaughter, Debbie, while the two dated. Garrity had encouraged Debbie to break up with Caprat. As for the other victims, he said he knew them because he had done some maintenance work for them. As for the burglary at the Whitney house, Caprat said he parked his car under the carport and entered the house through a rear door, which he pried open with a tool. After he got inside, he struck Alice Whitney with the same tool. Then he attacked her husband. That part was a surprise. He assumed Alice Whitney lived at the house alone. He was there to rape and kill her like the others. After he beat both victims, he lit the curtains on fire, ran out of the house, and then drove away. Caprat was the most graphic when he discussed his last murder. After forcing sex on Alice Dahl, and while he was on top of her, it appeared she was having a heart attack. It was at that point that he stood over Dahl and stomped on her throat. He did that in an effort to break her neck so that she would stop suffering. It was during that part of the interview, Douglas told me, that he nearly got up and walked out. Jurors didn't hear all of those confessions during the guilt phase of the trial. They only listened to the evidence associated with the one murder for which he was charged. But once the penalty phase came around, the portion of the trial in which jurors hear testimony to decide whether to sentence him to death, they learned about the other killings and the manner in which he carried them out. And it was obvious to Prosecutor Rick Ridgway how much of an impact that evidence had on jurors. We made a tactical decision that to preserve the appeal, to, to make the case even more appeal-proof, 
Uh, we did not introduce the Williams rule other murders in our trial. The, so the jury went back and did not know that he had committed these other murders. And the jury that, that tried our case was, was from Lake County. Uh, because of the publicity, uh, we actually went to Lake County and selected a jury, and then they were brought to Brooksville to do the trial. And I remember the morning after the verdict when we went down and started the penalty phase, and I put on the deputy who then started going through the other murders and you know how many other people had been murdered. And the fact that he'd been convicted of one of them already, you you could see in their faces then, all of a sudden the lights come on like, oh, now we know why we're over here. You could see it when they started realizing he had done more than one. Another unusual part of the case to Ridgway was how the defendant's parents behaved around him and other prosecutors in the case. They openly shared with Ridgway how they felt. The murders, he said, devastated them. I do remember as part of the preparing for the penalty phase, sitting down and and talking to his parents. I, I, I have done that uh, maybe once or twice where I've sat and talked to family members of, of, a, of a murder defendant, but that one stands out in my mind. They, they seem like decent people, and it really made you, made you wonder, you know, there before the grace of God go, I, you know, how, how parents, you know, how they, how they had to feel being in the spot where they were. I, do, I remember in the trial, in, in the sentencing phase, you know, telling the jury, that they should feel sorry for the for his family, you know. Certainly, all of us did. They should. They didn't deserve to be here any more than the victim's family deserved to be here. But they were there for the same reason the victim's families were there, and that is because Edwin Caprat made the decision to commit these murders and put them in that spot. Caprat's parents even checked out books at the library about serial killers to try and learn what possibly went wrong with their own son. They recalled how he was a normal boy until he was 13. That's when he started using drugs. And that's when he started having mood swings. His mother likened him to the Incredible Hulk. DeWitt told me there was no trauma in Caprat's life that defense attorneys could point to that caused him to become so sadistic. All signs pointed to Caprat growing up in a stable home with loving parents. They were nice, and I remember the, the sister's quote was, uh, you know, somebody asked them if they were um, abused children, and she said, well, spoiled, spoiled rotten little brats is more like it. So her, per, her perception, anyway, was that they were, they were indulged kids. There were even indications that he was a pretty smart guy. He was a knowledgeable machinist. Math came easy for him, and he was an avid reader. He was bright, and I remember uh, one time when they had him under surveillance, I think he spent a night in a parking lot of a bar because he was arguing with his girlfriend, he was arguing with his family, and they they said he stayed up all night and was reading a uh, Tom Clancy book. (laughs) So... You know, he was he was he was intellectually capable. Both trials were held back to back in January 1995. Jurors both times recommended death. During the first trial, Caprat's own uncle asked jurors not to execute his nephew because he wasn't worth killing. He told jurors, quote, he's not worth one tear in the river of tears he's caused. Before the trial, 
Gaprat cut his own wrists while in jail. His suicide attempt was unsuccessful, but he would soon come in contact with two men willing to do the job for him. As if there weren't enough twists in this story. On April 19, 1995, a mere six weeks after being sentenced to die, Caprat was killed while on death row. He and another inmate were fatally stabbed by two fellow inmates in the recreation yard at Florida State Prison in Rayford. News reports stated they were stabbed over a dispute during a volleyball game. People back in Hernando were stunned when they got the call. Ridgeway, however, found out about it via word on the street. Literally. Oh, I remember finding out about it and I didn't get a call. It was the morning of or the morning after the Oklahoma City bombing. And there was a bomb threat that was called into the Brooksville Police or Courthouse. And they evacuated the courthouse because of the bomb threat. And I, I got there and everybody's standing out there on the on the sidewalks. And I stand out there talking to somebody, and a reporter, and I don't remember which one, came up to me and asked me if I'd heard and, and told me what had happened. Jeff Kraft had the same thoughts as a lot of people. Kapratt's early death was just. As far as heinous and shock value murder, this is definitely the cake taker. That's why I did not lose a wink of sleep, and I actually was pleased to hear karma met him in prison, and his demise was untimely and sounds like painful, so I was pleased to hear that he faced an equal punishment. Baxley, for the most part, agreed, although a small part of him wanted to see Kaprat spend more time confined to a cell. My reaction was very favorable. Uh, my, my, my reaction was, uh, you know, typical, well, you know, you got what you had coming to you. Uh, you know, uh, couldn't happen to a better guy. Uh, and then I'd be less than honest with you if I didn't tell you that a part of me was upset too. DeWitt doesn't remember anyone conveying anything other than satisfaction at the news of Caprat's death. Yeah, I do remember, you know, everybody was like, yeah, everybody was really happy about it, basically. <laughs> you know, there, was, there wasn't even a single person saying, oh, too bad. One of Sophia Garrity's daughters told the Times, quote, I'm not sad. He murdered my mother. He raped her. He beat her up. He set her house on fire. He left me without a mother. I feel relieved. That was the consensus. It didn't matter how he died. Him being dead was all that mattered. Mike Caprat committed some of the most dastardly crimes imaginable. It's rare to hear of anyone raping elderly women. But to rape them, kill them, and set them on fire again and again? That seems unique to me. He even was given a moniker, the Granny Killer. Those who have listened regularly to this podcast have probably realized by now that this is one of the longest, most comprehensive segments I've ever done. It might be the most comprehensive story ever told about Micah Pratt. And that's sort of the point. Why is this man not mentioned in the same breath as other serial killers? 
We know all about Ted Bundy, Eileen Warnos, Gerald Stano, and Danny Rowling. More people also remember Oscar Ray Bolin and David Allen Gore, two serial killers I've profiled previously on this podcast. So why does Caprat seem to get overlooked? I pose that question to Rick Ridgway. Well, uh, I am a little surprised, and even was at the time, that outside of Hernando County, you know, there was um, not a lot of attention paid to the case. And, and why that is, I'm going to have to turn that question back to you, <laughs> because it would have been the media uh, that would have publicized it and given it the attention. And why, I, I honestly, I don't know. Yeah, you know, based on the research that I've done so far, the Times and the Tribune both covered the hell out of this. Yeah. It just did not elicit national attention like I thought it would. Yeah. Well, I know the New York Times did a short blurb on it, I think when the trial started or when he got sentenced or maybe when he was murdered. I don't remember, you know. So they, so they were aware of it. But, you know, Dateline or nobody came down to... To, you know, do anything with it or anything like that. And it really did, in a way, kind of surprised me that it didn't get more attention. Jeff Kraft shared with me his theory on Caprat's lack of notoriety. I just think he didn't get his kill numbers up that high. His crimes were disgusting and egregious, but thank God for that fingerprint. Thank God for the police work that led to following him to make sure nobody else was killed in the meantime. And I mean, that it comes down to that fingerprint find, in my opinion. They identified him, they sat on him, they got him arrested because he would have killed again. There is no question. He was not right. So I believe the police work is what kept him from joining those ranks. DeWitt has pondered this same question. He thinks the victims' ages may have had something to do with it. He also thinks there were so many other serial killers capturing headlines during the 80s and 90s that Caprat's crimes, as atrocious as they were, got muted. You know, he had a lot of competition. <laughs> you know, you had the first female, you had the first female um, serial killer, first famous one, Eileen Warnos. You had Ted Bundy, who was who was very handsome and very charming and very intelligent. You know, um, which and also his his victims were a lot sexier. And Danny Rowling, also, you know that that creates more alarm. You're when you're killing twenty year old college students. That that's that's much. I think that's more terrorizing than than taking people at the end of their lives. Not that there wasn't sympathy for them. But I think I think that's probably why there hasn't been more interest. I went on a website that's curated by a true crime writer, and she said she could never get anybody interested in the case because the victims weren't young and attractive, basically. There were just so many of them then. It was easy to get lost. DeWitt also told me that it seemed Caprat was aiming for infamy. Caprat actually told detectives he wanted to fry like Ted Bundy. Jeezy Smith, the former commander I mentioned earlier, told reporters that Caprat made a lifestyle decision. He turned to serial killing the same way people decide they want to change careers, convert to a new religion, or start taking violin lessons. There may be another reason for the lack of attention to this case. It all ended so soon after it began. 
Caprat killed his first Hernando victim in August 1993. He killed his last victim 48 days later. Then in April 1995, Caprat was killed on death row. In less than 21 months, it was all over. So much violence happened during those 21 months, but because Caprat was arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced, and killed in such quick succession, the story never got a chance to take hold. Caprat probably would have granted interviews while in prison. He was known to communicate with journalists while in the county jail, and without any news about appeals and looming death sentences, reporters never had any reason to revisit those crimes. Most of Caprat's murders also were contained in Hernando, a county located far enough north of Tampa and far enough east of Orlando that it doesn't elicit much scrutiny. Whatever the reason, Caprat failed to attain the very thing he wanted most, lasting attention. No books have been written about him, No Dateline or 48 Hours or 2020 episodes ever aired segments on him. He lacked panache. He was completely devoid of charm. And he didn't really have a distinguishable look, although his mullet was especially gaudy. Rick Ridgway, who prosecuted Eileen Warnos and admitted that Warnos could give even the most seasoned forensic psychologist the chills, told me that Caprat when you saw him up close, wasn't all that frightening. In the end, he simply wasn't all that memorable. You know, he was a big guy. I, mean, I remember him being you know, physically kind of imposing, but as far as menacing or making me feel the, the, the creeps looking at him, no, I don't, I don't recall that at all. He was just a guy that went out and killed people. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I will go way back in time A year when the Major League Baseball home run record was broken. Not by Bonds or McGuire or even Maris. I'm talking about 1927 when Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs. That was the same year that Flagler County Sheriff Perry Hall was killed in the line of duty. His slang set off three weeks of racially motivated bloodshed from Bunnell, Florida to Brookfield, Georgia. My special guest next week will include history professor James Denham and current Flagler Sheriff Rick Staley. Join us next week for that story. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.